Well, good morning, Calvary family. I want to, before we open the Word of God together, I want to invite you to grab your bulletins, which I know you all read, right? <laughs> grab your bulletins. There is a very, very important insert in your bulletin. And as you will see on the bulletin, we have really exciting news. Next week, October 6th through 8th, David and Aaron Kanaversky will be with us. David is a candidate for our senior associate pastor position, and David will be preaching for us, and then Sunday night there will be a Q&A, and there's a, some other events that weekend as well. If you'll open your bulletin, and you'll find kind of the uh, spot in the middle that's highlighted with a box, uh, there's an announcement there about the uh, events of the weekend. There's going to be a men's breakfast on Saturday. And so really make sure that you're here next week uh, to hear David preach. Be here next Sunday evening for the Q&A. That's the opportunity for the congregation to ask David questions and to get to know more about him personally. Uh, this is a really important event in the life of our church as the elders are presenting now to you, the congregation, uh, David as a candidate uh, for uh, your prayerful decision on whether we as a church will call him to serve among us as a pastor. I'm really excited uh, about David, uh, David's candidacy. Uh, he pastored a church that's right near uh, the Masters University where I went to school. So when I was a student, he was one of the spiritual leaders in the area and um, is known and has wonderfully impacted the lives of many of my friends as well as professors and other leaders that uh, I deeply know and respect. And so this is a man who's coming to us with uh, 30 years of ministry experience, and we're so blessed to have him with us next week. So please come and uh, be in prayer as, uh, as uh, we together as a congregation uh, make this uh, solemn decision before the Lord. So be in prayer about that and be here next week. I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to be in verses 1 and 2 this morning. And I want to begin with a premise that I think you'll all agree with. <clears throat> in first service I said, if anyone doesn't agree with this premise, come up and see me after the service because I really want to meet you, okay? So here's the premise, okay? And if you disagree with this premise, come see me. I want to meet you, okay? And the premise is this. Life is hard. Life is hard. So if you don't agree with that premise, I want to meet you. I've, I've never met anyone who, who hasn't endured any hardships in life. So if you have been walking a path strewn with rose petals all your life and have never experienced any pain or suffering or loss or heartache of any kind, then come and see me. Um, I'm not sure what that would mean, but I will, I'll be interested to, to meet you. But the premise, I think, is one that everyone agrees with, and if you don't, I'm sure you soon will. Life is hard. Now, when I say that, I, I first want to make a couple of qualifications. I'm not denying that there are many joys and blessings in life. God, uh, in his common grace that he extends to all mankind, gives certain blessings that everyone, believers and unbelievers, can enjoy in life. That's the love of family, friendships, music, food. There are lots of blessings of common grace. These are good gifts which God has given us to enjoy in this transient life. And in saying that life is hard, I'm also not denying that saving grace brings an abundant life to believers. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. We do indeed have an abundant life. God has given our life meaning 
and it is filled with wonderful things like the awe of worship, the joy of fellowship, the love, joy, and peace of the fruit of the Spirit, and the soul-satisfying purpose of living your life to fulfill the Great Commission. Life with Christ is indeed an abundant life. So you have blessings of common grace and then you have the blessings of an abundant life which comes through saving grace and all of those are certainly true and yet we can affirm that life is hard. Life was hard for Christ. Life was hard for the apostles and we too will experience a life that is hard. The Bible of course explains in its very opening pages why life is hard. How many people have I met at various ages and stages in their life who seem to still be just so baffled why life is so hard and sometimes you just want to kind of grab my shoulders and say, it's on the third page. (laughs) The Bible does explain why life is hard and that's because mankind fell into sin and decided to follow the devil who's... The scripture says, as Jesus said, comes only to kill and steal and destroy. That's why life is hard. Mankind fell into sin, subjected ourselves to the devil who steals, kills, and destroys, and therefore a curse descended on this world, and that curse will not be lifted until the second coming of Christ. There's a curse on this fallen world, and that's why life is hard. The curse of death brings sorrow as we bury loved ones. It brings fear, Because the inevitability of our own impending death can never be pushed very far from our minds. It brings angst as time slips through our fingers like sand, as children grow up too fast, as our bodies deteriorate too quickly. We soon realize that we are like a wilting flower, here today, gone tomorrow, like a mist, James says, that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Soon, we will be just as remembered here as your great-great-grandparents are. We will soon be just like the generations which preceded us, gone and soon forgotten. Then there is the curse which is over our work. Before the fall of man, work was soul-satisfying. It was the use of our creative gifts and abilities to, to manage and tend this glorious, perfect paradise of Eden. Now, work has become tedious and wearisome. It's filled with frustration as our labor produces only thorns and thistles, as the curse said. The curse also said that we would eat our food by the sweat of our brow. I was thinking about that this week. I I thought, you know, throughout most of history, people experienced that part of the curse so much more viscerally than we do. I mean, they had to like, you know, they had to make a tool and then use that tool to hoe the ground and then plant the seed and then pull the weeds and then harvest by hand and then grind up the grain and then cook it and get the wood to cook it. I mean, they ate every meal with buckets of sweat behind it. And it kind of seems like, well, maybe that part is getting a little easier. I mean, after all, you can kind of go to Walmart. You don't even have to get your groceries anymore. You can have them get it for you and load it into your car. If you don't want to drive to Walmart, you can just have them deliver it to your door. Pretty soon, they're going to have a service where you can just sit in your chair and they'll just put it right in your mouth, you know. (laughs) You know, put a little bib on you. It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of sweat of the brow anymore, and yet... 
then we realize, oh, yes, there is the daily grind of work, the commute, the cubicle, the daily grind. But uh, here's what I was really kind of thinking about. Have you ever noticed that we, in our more prosperous times and technologically advanced times, we still eat by the sweat of our brow, but now it occurs after we eat. See, we sweat to earn the money to buy the food, then we eat the food, then we have to go to the gym to sweat off the food. (laughs) So we sweat to eat, and then we sweat again because we ate. So even in an... With all of our technology and advancements, we can't escape the curse that we will eat our food by the sweat of our brow. Sweat to get it and then sweat to keep it from killing us through diabetes or obesity. Then there are all the wars, natural disasters, the sicknesses, the unrequited loves, the broken relationships, the broken hearts, and a million other hardships which befall us in this cursed world. Life is hard. And as I say that, there are things in your life which are coming to your mind. Life is hard because we're a fallen race living under the curse which came because of sin. And you can try to pretend that life isn't hard. You can try to use the power of positive thinking to tell yourself that life isn't hard, that the glass is half full. And yet the older you get, you realize the glass is evaporating. And then what you realize is that the glass has never been half full. Long ago, the glass was dashed against the wall of sin and death. You can also pretend like humanity doesn't deserve the curse we're under. And you can rage at God as you sink into nihilistic despair. So you can pretend that life isn't hard or you can pretend that we don't deserve it. But the reality is life is hard and we deserve it. The reality of the curse is always there. And we read, for example, in the book of Ecclesiastes, an honest assessment of the harsh realities of life when a king who had tried everything to make himself happy in this world says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, just a chasing after the wind. Life is hard. And we all know that it is hard So the real question is, is there any hope and is there any comfort in the midst of the hardships of life? Our text is going to gloriously tell us that there is hope and there is comfort. Look at Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. And he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. 
Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will, carry the, he will gather the lambs and carry them next to his heart. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. This is comfort and this is hope in the midst of a hard life in a fallen world. I want to show you kind of where we're at in our study of Isaiah. We've just concluded the historical excursus in chapters 36 through 39. So in chapter 40, Isaiah is introducing the rest of the book. And as I've said before, the third and final part of the book focuses on salvation by grace. That is the major theme. And in that last section... There's a historical excursus in chapters 36 through 39. And then in chapters 40 through 66, there are three major sections. And all of them focus on salvation by grace. The reason we know this part, this third part, can be divided into three sections is because they all end with a warning to the wicked. The phrase, there is no peace for the wicked, occurs at chapter 48, verse 22, and then again at chapter 57, verse 21, and they mark the transitions between the three sections, ending then with the last verse of the book in chapter 66, verse 24, which is also a strong warning to the wicked. So you have three sections, all of which, which, all of which end with a warning to the wicked. So there are three sections then in chapters 40 through 66. And so we've seen the historical excursus and then we have section one in 40 through 48, section two, chapters 49 through 57, and section three in chapters 58 through 66. Now notice I left the blank line there because we're gonna fill in kind of a title for these sections, but I want to show you where we're going to derive those titles from. And we're going to derive them from chapter 40, verses 1 through 2. And we're going to do that because verses 1 and 2 are an introduction and a thematic summary of the rest of the book of Isaiah. And since chapter 40, verses 1 through 2 is an introduction and a thematic summary, we can give those three sections titles based upon the three commands and the three instructions given in verses one and two. There are three commands given in verses one and two. Isaiah is commanded to comfort God's people, to speak kindly to Jerusalem, and to call out to her. And then there are three parallel clauses in verse two, all of which begin with the same Hebrew word which is translated in English as that. And they tell Isaiah the content of the message that he is supposed to deliver. He's commanded to comfort God's people, to speak kindly to Jerusalem, and to call out to her. And what is he to comfort them with? What is he to speak kindly with them about? What is he to call out to her? And the answer in verse 2 is that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, and that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So three commands and three instructions or three themes. 
So these three commands and these three prophetic messages given in verses 1 through 2 provide the outline of the three remaining sections of chapters 40 through 66. So if you're looking at our overall outline in that final section, and by the way, that should be Roman numeral number 3 up there. Don't know why I just noticed that typo. But Roman numeral 3, the third part of the book, Salvation by Grace, and then we have the historical excursus, and then we have the final three sections. Share comfort because the Messiah will bring peace. Say tenderly that Messiah will make atonement and cry out that the Messiah will give salvation. So that's kind of the remaining outline for the book. And with that broader context in mind, let's look now more closely at the three commands and three marvelous truths revealed in Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 2. First, we are to share comfort because the Messiah will bring peace. Share comfort because the Messiah will bring peace. Verse 1 says, Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. And I love this phrase because it reveals such a precious truth about the heart of God. God repeats the word comfort twice. Comfort, oh, comfort my people. He's a God of compassion. He wants his people to experience the comfort that only he can give them. And so he calls out to Isaiah and he says, Isaiah, go comfort them. Comfort them, Isaiah. And the idea is strengthened even further in the wording of this clause because as Alec Moitier points out, the grammar of the phrase, your God says, is in an imperfect tense in the Hebrew. And so it describes something that God keeps saying repeatedly. He kept coming to Isaiah and saying, Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people. Isaiah, comfort them, comfort them. And he kept saying it over and over again to Isaiah. God keeps on repeating this elsewhere in the Bible as well. He says in 1 Thessalonians, comfort one another. He says that we are to comfort each other with the comfort we have received from God. You see, the desire of God's heart is to bring comfort to his people. That's near and dear to his heart because he is a God of compassion. Psalm 145 verses 8 through 9 says, Yahweh is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Yahweh is good to all and his compassions are over all his works. This is the heart of God in verse 1. Comfort, oh comfort my people. Keeps on saying the Lord. Now, verse 1 obviously is a command to Isaiah, but this command is broader than a command just to Isaiah. And the reason we know that is because the words comfort, O oh comfort, are plural imperatives. That's why the King James Version translates this as comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. In other words, all of you comfort my people. God wants more than just Isaiah to deliver this message of, of comfort. Yes, it's, it's primarily addressed to Isaiah, but it goes beyond him to others. Now, who are the others? Some scholars have said, well, God's commanding Isaiah and all the other prophets. Or, well, God's commanding Isaiah and the priests. But no group is specified here. There's just a plural given. And since the text doesn't narrow the meaning by specifying who is supposed to do this, it's best to take this as a general command. A command which is given to all believers to apply. The Lord wants all of us to be actively comforting his people. 
He wanted all of those Old Testament believers in the time of Isaiah to be comforting his people. And that same idea is repeated in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, which I cited earlier, comfort one another. Or 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, which is that we are to receive comfort from God and then give that comfort to others. So the Lord wanted all of his people in the time of Isaiah to give this comfort. And in the New Testament, we see the same idea. We are to be comforting one another. Well, what is the message of comfort that we are to give? How are we to comfort other believers? What is the message of comfort that God wanted Isaiah to deliver to his chosen people in Jerusalem? And the first message is in verse 2, and that is that her warfare has ended. So comfort my people, that's the first command. And then parallel to that is the first instruction. Comfort them by telling them that their warfare has ended. Now in the historical context, there was a past fulfillment that had just happened. If you remember from the preceding context in chapters 36 through 39, God had just delivered them from the Assyrian invasion. And so they are celebrating the the end of this invasion and the deliverance from this invasion. And so they're being comforted that this war is over. But the following context in chapter 40, beginning in verse 3 and all the way to the end of the book, makes it clear that there's not only the historical fulfillment in the time of Isaiah, but there is going to be a future prophetic fulfillment of this ending of warfare. And as we've talked about before, the prophets, as they are shown the future by the Lord, it's kind of like they're standing on a mountaintop and seeing successive mountain ranges where they're seeing the mountains off in the distance. And so Isaiah in chapters 40 through 66 is going to talk about how the nation is going to be taken into captivity in Babylon, but there will come a day in which that generation will receive comfort like the gener- his generation had at the end of the Assyrian invasion and the Babylonian Captivity will be over and ended and they will be able to return to the land. That's the initial fulfillment of this end of warfare prophecy. But as we continue to look at the context, we see that beyond the near fulfillment in the future, there's going to be a final or ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy in the end times when the prince of peace comes and establishes his kingdom of peace and all war and all warfare is ended forever. All, all enmity with God is ended and all warfare between men is ended. The prince of peace is going to establish peace and warfare will end. So Isaiah as we will see in chapters 40 through 66, comforts his generation with the news that their warfare had ended. And then he prophetically comforts the future generation that would endure the Babylonian captivity to comfort them that their warfare will also end. And then finally, he prophetically comforts all generations with the certainty of the Messiah's ultimate triumph and the establishment of the eternal peace of his kingdom. So here's the lesson. The command is to comfort God's people and the content of the comfort is that the prince of peace will end the warfare. The Messiah will bring peace. That is how we are to comfort each other. Second command and the second truth is 
that we are to say tenderly that the Messiah will make atonement. Say tenderly, God tells Isaiah, that the Messiah will make atonement. In verse 2 it says, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Now the New American Standard and several other versions translate this as speaking kindly. The ESV translates this as speaking tenderly. And both are excellent translations of the original. It has the idea of very tender, very kind, very gentle speech. But I think the Legacy Standard Version gives the best translation because they translate the Hebrew term lev or heart that is here in this phrase literally and translate it as speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Speak to the heart. Old Testament scholar Alec Moitier says that the phrase used here means to speak in a very tender fashion directly to the, someone's heart. Messianic scholar Arnold Fruchtenbaum points out, quote, Lev is a word that is used elsewhere in scripture for courtship. It describes speaking to the heart for the purpose of winning the heart. And he gives seven or eight passages. And he gives the example of, Isaiah, of Hosea 2.14, which says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And then he writes, God was going to speak tenderly to Israel. He was going to speak to her heart for the purpose of winning her heart. In other words, God's command to Isaiah and then more generally to all believers is to speak in a way that is kind and tender and woos the heart. Have you ever noticed how differently a young man will speak to his bros versus a girl he's interested in? I mean, to his bros, I mean, he can, he'll razz them, he can even be really harsh with them. But boy, when he's speaking to a girl he's interested in, it is kind and it is tender and it woos. Scripture is telling us to speak God's truth that way. The New Testament says we are to speak the truth in love. And here we are told to be winsome in how we share God's truth. God says, Isaiah, speak kindly to her. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak to her heart. Woo her. That is how we are to be as ambassadors as Christ. We are to deliver the king's message clearly, without compromise, precisely, no waffling at all, clear and precise and direct, but tenderly, kindly, lovingly. Well, what is the message that we're supposed to share so tenderly? The second message in verse two is that her iniquity has been removed. Speak tenderly to her. Speak tenderly to her heart and tell her that her iniquity has been removed. Now, according to a well-known Old Testament dictionary and linguist, the phrase used here means that sin has been met with a satisfactory payment. How was it removed? It was removed through a satisfactory payment. That's what the terms here mean. Alec Moitier agrees, saying that the phrase means that the sin has been paid for. He writes, quote, the same noun and verb appear in Leviticus 26, 41 and 43, meaning to accept punishment for iniquity. 
The passive tense, as used here in Isaiah, means the punishment of their iniquity has been accepted as satisfactory by God. He says the verb is used only of God's acceptance of the Levitical offerings and the only uses of this passive verb are Leviticus 1, 4, 7, 18, 19, 7, chapter 22, verses 23, 25, and, and 17, all of which are concerned with the offering and acceptance by God of a blood sacrifice. In other words, when it says, tell Jerusalem that her iniquity has been removed, it's speaking of a blood sacrifice which has resulted in the pardon of the people. That's why the NIV translates this phrase as, tell Jerusalem that her sin has been paid for. It's why the ESV translates it as saying, tell them that their sin is pardoned, and the NAS translated it as, tell Jerusalem that their sin has been removed. The idea here is that they have been pardoned because their sin has been paid for by a blood sacrifice, a blood atonement, and therefore the guilt of sin has been removed from their account. And this is for them wonderful news because if you remember in the first 35 chapters of Isaiah they have been judged for their sin their sins have been laid out in the cosmic courtroom and they have been adjudicated as guilty so this is incredible news that tenderly gently speaking to the heart they are to be told by the prophet of God that their iniquity has been removed well how could all of that sin and iniquity be removed how could they be pardoned and that is the question that Isaiah wants to bring to our mind as readers as we begin to study chapters 40 through 66 and his answer as we've said by the way we've we've named that whole section is that salvation is by grace he's going to begin to answer the question of how can this pardon be happen and he's going to begin to answer that question in chapter 40 by telling us that the messiah is coming he says in chapter 40 verse 3 there's the voice of one crying in the wilderness get ready for the coming of the lord and then in verse 9 it says Get yourself up on a high mountain and it says that the Lord is going to come. Make smooth a highway for our God, it says. Say to the cities of Judah, here's your God. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God will come with might and he will be like a shepherd. So he begins to answer the question by telling us Messiah is coming in chapter 40 and then he's going to continue to answer that question in the following chapters culminating in chapter 53 verses 4 through 6 where he shares that the coming Messiah, the shepherd will give his life in the place of sinners. He will suffer for our sins. He will bear our iniquity and it says the wrath of God which we deserve will fall on him the way that we can have our iniquity removed is through the atoning sacrifice of the Messiah. In fact, that's the only way it can be removed. The only way the guilt and penalty of sin can be removed is through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah. It is the only way that a sinner can be fully and forever pardoned. It's the only way in which a heart can hear the tender good news of the removal of all sin and guilt. 
Jesus therefore says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is a way of salvation and only one way and that way is through the cross of Christ. That's the good news that the Old Testament saints were told to declare. Get up on a high mountain, Jerusalem, who bears the good news and proclaim the good news. And we are also told to go into all the world and share the good news. But as we do, we need to remember how we are to share it. And the commandment in Isaiah 40, 1 through 2, is that we are to speak tenderly to the heart. Speak tenderly to the heart. So say tenderly that Messiah has made atonement. Third command and the third truth is that we are to cry out that the Messiah gives salvation. Isaiah is told, Isaiah, cry out that the Messiah will give salvation and he will give it as a gift. Cry out that the Messiah will give salvation. The third commandment is to call out to her. He is to comfort, he is to speak tenderly, and now he is to call out. This is a public proclamation. This is something the Lord wants everyone to know. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And that's exactly what is said here in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40, verse 9 says, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. And like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them next to his heart. And he will gently lead the nursing youth. Declare this publicly to everyone. Call out to her, the Lord says. Well, what is it that we are to call out what was Isaiah to call out? And he was to call out that third message in verse two, at the end of verse two, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Call out that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Well, what does that mean? She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Well, in biblical prophecy, the term double for sins typically refers to the wrath of God being poured out on sinners. Let me refer you to Jeremiah chapter 16 verse 18 where we see this same phrase, Jeremiah 16 verse 18. I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. And then in Revelation 18, this same idea of double payment for sin occurs. Revelation chapter 18 says this. Let me just read it to you. Revelation 18 is talking about the fall of Babylon the Great in the end times. 
And it says this in verse 6, Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed. Mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. For this reason in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire for the Lord God who judges her is strong. So this phrase double for sin, a double payment for sin, refers to the wrath of God being poured out on evil. God's wrath is poured out double on evil. That's not fair, you might say. Listen, you don't determine what's fair, the judge does. This is not a courtroom in which there are plea bargains. The sin is against the infinite holiness of God and the marring of all creation through sin. And that brings wrath, and that wrath falls in a double measure. So receiving double is clearly a reference to the outpouring of God's wrath, which raises a question for us in Isaiah 40, verse 2. How exactly is this news comforting? How is this news comforting? Call out that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And the answer which Isaiah gives is that this is comforting news. In fact, it is good news. Because as he's going to explain, someone else pays that price. Someone takes their place and bears the double payment, the wrath of God, for them. As we're going to see in chapters 40 through 66, the Messiah is going to come and he is going to bear their sins. He's going to suffer in their place. He's going to be stricken of God and afflicted. In other words, he's going to bear the full wrath of God towards sin and his sacrifice will be more than sufficient. He will pay a double payment, even more than is needed. Now, Note that when Isaiah writes, chapter 40, verse 2, the substitutionary atonement, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was still future when he writes this. And yet, Isaiah, writing seven centuries before Christ, puts this in a past tense. Cry out that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, the atoning sacrifice of the Messiah had already been credited to the account of the Old Testament believers. And notice, it was not credited to them because of something they had done to merit or deserve it. We have 35 chapters that explain why they didn't deserve it. So how did they get it if they didn't deserve it? Well, the text says they received it from the hand of the Lord. It wasn't something they did, not something they merited, not something they deserved. It was something they received. God says, Isaiah, call out that they have received from my hand the double payment for sin. This is salvation by grace and grace alone. 
by grace and grace alone, the Lord had given them the gift of salvation and he did so on the basis of the atoning sacrifice of the Messiah. In fact, in just this one phrase, we see three things about the atoning sacrifice of the coming Messiah. It is from the hand of the Lord. It is more than sufficient to fully pay for sin and it is received, not earned. Call out to her that she has received from the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. A more than sufficient atonement for all sin. This is the gospel in, a new, in an Old Testament verse. And in fact, in chapter 40, verse 9, just a few verses later, the term good news appears twice using a Hebrew term which is equivalent of the New Testament term gospel or good news. You see why God has, it is true that God has administered his sovereign rule in different ways and different eras and dispensations of history. But the means of salvation has always and ever been one and the same. There's only one way sinful people have ever been saved or will ever be saved and that is by grace through faith in the atoning work of Jesus the Messiah. That is the singular way of salvation Old Testament and New. Old Testament saints were saved by faith in the coming Messiah and in the sacrifice that he would make. New Testament saints are saved by faith in the Messiah who has come and in the atonement that he has made on the cross. Old Testament believers were saved by a faith that looked forward to the cross. New Testament believers are saved by a faith that looks back to the cross. But all are saved the same way. They are saved by the cross of Christ and no one at no time is saved any way else. Salvation is from the hand of the Lord the cross of Christ is more than sufficient to fully pay for sin. And salvation is received, not earned. It is a gift of grace. So I want to ask you, has your warfare ended? What warfare you say? Well, Scripture says that the unbeliever is at enmity with God. You're part of the kingdom of darkness, which is in, an, in this epic war against the Lord has your warfare against God ended because you've been reconciled to him through the death of his son has your iniquity been removed has your iniquity been removed by the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and have you received from the Lord's hand double for all your sin. How do you receive it? How? How, pastor? How do I receive all of this? The answer given both Old Testament is and new is you must believe. You must believe. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, I pray 
that there will be no soul that leaves this room without ending their warfare against you. That they would reconcile with you through the peace that you've made through the death of your son and through his resurrection from the dead. I pray no soul would leave without their iniquity being removed. I pray that no soul would leave this room without having received by grace through faith from your hand a more than sufficient, a super sufficient payment for all their sins. This is the good news that you call us to declare, to comfort each other with, to speak tenderly to the heart of each soul, and to call out publicly. May we be faithful to do so. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna ask the men to come and serve us the bread as we come to the Lord's table. And men, if you would, just come and begin to serve the bread. And we're going to have the instrumentalist play. But as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want to apply that command given in Isaiah 40, verse 1. I thought how poor it would be of me to preach about this command and then not apply it. So I want to simply myself obey this command to comfort the people of God. I want to speak words of comfort to the soul that is burdened with guilt. If your soul is burdened with guilt, be comforted. Christ has died for your sin. He has risen from the dead to break the power of sin and death. And by faith, you can receive full pardon. If you're a believer, but you have strayed from the Lord, committed a sin that's burdening your conscience, be comforted. For Sean 1.8 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Be comforted. I want to speak to the soul that is grief-stricken. And I want to remind you that your Lord wept at a tomb of one he loved. And the scripture says that he himself bore our griefs, a man of sorrows. He understands you. He is your great high priest. Be comforted with his unfailing love. Perhaps there is a soul who's struggling because you face chronic pain every day. And you cry out, when will it ever end? Be comforted, it will. Your Lord promises you that he will make all things new. And that old things will pass away. And soon you will be with him in a place where there is no mourning or crying or pain chronic pain ends and eternity begins to the soul who is lonely be comforted Philippians 4 5 says very simply the Lord is near you feel lonely but you are not alone 
Christ has promised to never leave or forsake you. To the soul who is just discouraged, be comforted. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. And the scripture says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Be comforted, dear saints of the Lord. And as we now take in our hands the bread, we are reminded from whose hand the comfort comes. We are reminded of whose hand was pierced so that the comfort could come. And we remember him. Let's partake together. comfort the hurting souls among us bind up the brokenhearted. Lord may you through your word and through the indwelling spirit say to them behold your God a God of compassion a God of mercy and of love whose love was proven forever through your death on the cross through your resurrection and the gift of eternal life. Comfort, oh, comfort your people, I pray, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.